If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Wednesday, April the 3rd, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow. My guest today in our recruiting studio here on the campus of Stanford University is David Davenport. David Davenport's a Hoover Research Fellow specializing in international law and treaties, constitutional federalism, and American politics and law. From 1985 to 2000, David Davenport was president of Pepperdine University, begging the question, why would anybody want to live, leave that beautiful campus in Malibu? You can also find David Davenport's writing at Forbes.com, and he has regular uh, radio commentaries on the Salem Radio Network and Tenhall.com. David, welcome back to the podcast. Always good to be with you, Bill. Thank you for the invitation. Okay, seriously, are you in Malibu with Roll? <laughs> no, I'm over it. Although, you know, having grown up in Kansas, the places I've lived are San Diego, Malibu, and Stanford. So I see a trend here. The, the geography has all been improved. And let's <laughs> clarify, Pepperdine is in Malibu, but it's not necessarily of Malibu. Yes, uh, one of my several controversial decisions was to resist being in the city of Malibu, and I still think that was a wise choice. Okay, question for you, David Davenport. Um, I would like to go in the way, way back machine for me, and you, I guess, as well. Let's pretend we're 16 years old for a moment. Uh, for me, a very long time ago. Um, if I were 16 years old today, David, I could do the following. I could get married if I had consent. I could leave home without parental consent. I could operate an automobile um, in some states, I'd be limited what I could do with a car, but I could drive a car. I could donate organs. Not that the two are necessarily linked together, teen driving and donating organs. But David Davenport, you do not want to give me the right to vote if I'm 16 years old. What's your problem with me as a 16-year-old, sir? Well, first of all, let me, let me turn that argument on its head. It, it's not so much that I'm out there trying to stop you from voting. Mm -hmm. But uh, as a starting point, there are a lot of people advocating that you should be able to vote at 16, and I don't see the case for it. So that's kind of my first point is really the burden is on you, I think, to show me a reason why I should make that change. Right. The last time it was changed in the early 70s, the argument was, well, it's not really fair to be sending young people at age 18 to Vietnam to die right. uh, in war, but be unable to elect or be part of electing their leaders. To me, that was a reasonably compelling case. Right. Now, the, the move toward 16-year-old voting, voting has really come out of the student gun protests on campuses. And mm -hmm. sure, I mean, I think it's fine for students to rise up and get excited about an issue and protest and be engaged. But that's not the same thing as showing up making mature judgments about every right. race and every ballot measure on what is sometimes a very lengthy set of choices. To me, those are very different. I just don't see the case is my main point. There are a couple of lines of uh, conversation here when it comes to talking about 16-year-olds voting. One is biological. Just the question, is a 16-year-old mind really mature enough to vote, to cast a decision? And this gets, there are mature 16-year-olds and immature 16-year-olds. Yeah. There are mature 28-year-olds and mature 28-year-olds. Sure. Sure. But the other one is an educational one. And the question, when you're 16 years old, do you really have the knowledge of civics and, the, and really kind of the ability to dis discern between the two parties and understand the political system and thus therefore be an educated voter? Yeah, I, I think those are both important areas of inquiry and study. Um, all the research suggests that the brain develops even later than we once thought with right. with uh, brain aspects of judgment and so forth uh, going on into the 20s. 
Um, and so for most things, if you look around the country, it, most areas of responsibility, the age has been going up and not down. The age of drinking has been going up. Right. The age of driving without a parent or something else, someone else in your car has been going up. So in most areas, we've been asking for greater maturity before greater responsibility. So right. this would be an exception. Um, your second point, I think, is really well taken, and that is, I, I think one of the things that's happening more broadly than just voting is we've been putting the civic edu engagement cart before the civic education horse, if you will. Mm -hmm. We've been trying to get kids out there doing things and, and protesting and uh, getting involved in, in state and, and local matters, which is all well and good, but they don't really know what they're doing yet. And so just right. two quick data points. I mean, the last times time that we took the national uh, educational assessment tests, uh, the scores were in the 20 percentile for uh, the rate at which high school students, eighth grade students in this case, were proficient in uh, civics and in American history. Well, that's miserable. And so I think the real emphasis at 16 and in high school needs to be on developing a broad base of civic education right. before we really push harder on the civic engagement button. Right. Uh, so it's a question of cognition when you're 16 years old. And as my shallow understanding of this is there are two types of cognition. There is hot cognition and cold cognition. Cold cognition is the ability to reason logically with facts. And when you're 16 years old, apparently you can make those assessments. But there's also a thing, David, called hot cognition. And hot cognition is the ability to reason amidst emotions. And let's be honest, especially in the age of Donald Trump, voting has become a very emotional exercise. So again, this is the question, if you're 16 years old, are you really mature enough to cast a ballot? No, I think that's right. And, and the evidence is that what gets young people stirred up is not facing a, a range, a ballot of 20 decisions. Right. What gets them stirred up is a single issue. And um, again, to me, that's a very different level of civic engagement to mm -hmm. show up and protest because you, somebody got shot on your campus. Right. Very understandable. Easy to see how young people could be stirred up for the moment or for a week or a month. But, but voting on ballot propositions and candidates and choosing one judge over another and one county commissioner over another, I mean, those are, it takes long-term attention, really. Uh, so yes, I think that is a fair uh, criticism of the 16-year-old voting. Of course, you can find proponents for all ages. In my research, I found a professor at Cambridge who said, I'll let young people vote at six, uh, proving once again that, that no argument is too silly for an academic to, <laughs> to make. <laughs> right. So the 16-year-old voting question um, took on new life uh, recently when Nancy Pelosi engaged in it. And uh, she used an interesting word to talk about this. She said it would be great to capture young people at that age, getting them to vote capture. I find that kind of an interesting concept. But what's what's sparking Nancy Pelosi's interest Well, I'll, I'll give you a high road answer and a low road answer, Bill. Mm -hmm. uh, the high road answer, I suppose, is people argue by the time you're 18, 19, 20, 21, you're going to college, you're moving around, registration is hard to keep current. Right. And so let's capture them when they're 16 and they're living at home and they have a permanent address and maybe their parents will encourage them to go to the polls and to start habits early. Mm -hmm. That's the high road answer to your capture question. The low road answer is there are definitely political implications <laughs> to whether 16-year-olds vote or not. Right. What we, a, a survey just came out from the Pew Foundation which is very helpful because 
because before we could only take the millennial voters and project how that might translate to an even younger cohort of voters. Right. But Pew actually studied the younger teenage years and found that they are more liberal and more left even than their millennial big brothers and sisters. So the Nancy Pelosi's are not entirely without political motive when they say, yeah, we want more 16-year-olds to vote because they're going to vote more Democratic and liberal. Right. So if you're Beto O'Rourke or Bernie Sanders or Kamala Harris, it sounds like a grand idea, doesn't it? Uh, it's interesting, you go back to 1971 when Congress passed the 26th Amendment, David, and um, it was done fast. I think it was ratified in about 100 days. And Richard Nixon, hardly a fan of young voters in America, uh, signed it into law. But Nixon went on to win 49 states the next year. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I think that that America was really consumed by the Vietnam War, and it seemed like a more compelling case, as I mentioned earlier. Um, the the big difference today, I think, Bill, in terms of how this is being done. The difficulty of getting a constitutional amendment on anything is mm -hmm. extremely high. Two-thirds right. of both houses of Congress, three-fourths of the state legislatures. So the odds of a constitutional amendment on 16-year-old voting aren't that great. Instead, what's happening is it's coming up at municipalities, cities, and some state houses. Well, frankly, I'm, I'm not excited about it even in municipal elections, but if a particular city wants to do that and let them vote for school board or let them vote for mayor, I don't have any great objection. But if states start doing it, then we sometimes forget we don't have a single national election. We have 51 state and District right. of Columbia elections right. in this country under the Constitution. And so if a state decides to allow 16-year-olds to vote, well, then that counts for president, and mm -hmm. we've really changed the playing field. Right. So that's kind of the constitutional and legal aspect of it. It probably isn't going to be an amendment. It's going to be probably some state that breaks through and tries this, and then we're into the national presidential election. Let's talk a bit about the Constitution. I see you brought your little hand constitutional handbook packet, yes, with you. Just in case. Just in case. <laughs> um, there are three hobby horses that Democrats are riding right now when it comes to improving the public's trust in the democratic process. And one of them is letting 16-year-olds vote. The second one is changing the electoral college or doing away with the electoral college and making the presidential election a straight popular vote. And then the third one is changing the Supreme Court, the composition of the Supreme Court. What do those three things have in common? Well, their grievances over the last election, basically. Um, you are trying to get young people riled up the idea of Donald Trump getting elected and reelected. Um, you're trying to remind Democrats that this is the second time in five elections now that a president has been quote unquote selected, not elected. In other words, won the Electoral College, but not the popular vote. And then thirdly, with the Supreme Court, you are invoking the ghost of Merrick Garland, who has become a great Democratic mar martyr now. His uh, confirmation blocked in 2016 and Trump promptly uh, uh, picking uh, Gorsuch once he comes to office. Um, but of those three things, David, um, if you want to change the 16-year-old's right to vote, you have to go to the Constitution. You have to amend the Constitution. If you want to change the Electoral College, you have to fiddle with the Constitution. But if you want to change the Supreme Court's composition, my understanding is you do not have to go to the Supreme Court. You could do it with the Congress. Let's talk first about the Electoral College and really how you would go about changing this. And let's also get the larger question about the Electoral College. I've noticed that there is a new popular founding father these days. It's no longer Alexander Hamilton. It is James Madison. James Madison has been picked up. And supposedly James Madison, who put the Electoral College into play, wanted to abolish the Electoral College. And I find this to be a rather interesting bit of revisionist history. Right, right. 
No, the the history of the Electoral College is it, it was a compromise, and it, it was right. one of several compromises that right. were so made at James, the founding. James Wilson, the founding father from Pennsylvania, right. wanted a popular vote. Roger right. Sherman from Connecticut wanted Congress to do it. Right. And Madison literally whips out pen and paper and says, got a better idea, a college of electors. No, and of course, we, we hardly make any compromises today. We Correct. go to all-out war over any political issue. Right. We don't compromise. So, I mean, even that notion is is foreign to people. Uh, but it's one of several compromises that were made in order to create a partly national and partly federal system. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, uh, so states uh, have certain roles to play, including in the election of a president, as uh, does the federal government. Um, I, would, I would offer that I think even today, and I think people are kind of overlooking this, um, besides being constitutional, the Electoral College has a couple of practical benefits. One is that it prevents a national recount. If you can imagine uh, it, w taking the Florida recount in 2000, multiplying it by, you know, five or ten, right. and a national recount, we might even finish, not, so, not, even, not so even finish by January. Great, great point, because both parties would contest every state Absolutely. that was within five percent. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, some states have laws requiring recounts right, on certain margins uh, of the vote. The second practical advantage, I think, is it does send candidates or cause candidates to go to some smaller states and different regions of the country. If it were a single national popular vote, obviously the strategy would be to go to New York and Los Angeles and the big population centers. But I, I think it's been a healthy thing for them to have to go to, you know, states along the southern border and talk about immigration and go right. to the Rust Belt and talk about industrialization and the economy. So it will change the way presidential campaigns are done, and I and I think not for the better. So besides the constitutional case for the Electoral College, I think there's a modern practical case for it. Yeah, I do. Uh, the founding fathers who are horrified at the thought of Massachusetts and Virginia running the show, wouldn't they, David, be horrified by the thought of California, New York, Illinois, and a handful of states driving the national election because that's what would happen? Yeah, no, uh, no, question, no question about it. Right. Um, a little bit about the Electoral College. Yes, two in the last five times it has produced that reverse result, if you want to call it that. Sometimes, though, you could argue that it's worked out for the better of the country. I'd point people to the election of 1860. Abraham Lincoln wins only 39% of the vote, but he gets 180 electoral votes. He's the President of the United States. So would you like a different outcome then? <laughs> yes. It's only happened four times in our history that the winner of the popular vote right. lost in the Electoral College. Right. Twice in a very close time frame in the 1800s, and right. then twice in a very close time frame in this century. Yeah. And, um, but of course it's a political, you know, back to our point, most of these voting changes are not, to be candid, high-minded, highly principled changes. These are political questions. Right. And, and the Democrats would like a, a, a national popular vote and not to have to run things through the filter Right. of the Electoral College. We have lots of filter. We have a filtered democracy, not a direct democracy. Right, and tying it back to Madison, um, so the argument is that Madison actually grew to dislike the Electoral College because he, he left the White House in 1817, he lived to 1836, but he's around in 1824 when we have the first of these verdicts where um, John Quincy Adams loses the popular vote but is elected via the Electoral College. So this is used as, as the left's argument against the Electoral College, saying Madison, who created this, hated it. Madison did not actually dislike the Electoral College. He didn't, he didn't care for the way that election went down, but Madison looked at the bigger picture and saw that the system was producing men of very good character. 
now, okay, you can turn around and say, well, Donald Trump, and let's talk about character. But here, I think, David, we get into kind of a Shakespearean argument. You know, the question is the fault. The fault doesn't lie in the stars. It lies in ourselves. People voted for Donald Trump, and that's how he won electoral votes. Let me give you one other reason why I think the electoral college is important, David, and that's the people who run for office. If you don't have an electoral college, if you have a straight popular vote, then what is stopping every super wealthy individual in the country from mounting their own presidential campaign? In other words, you could quickly have a national election, David, in which 10 very wealthy, very famous people run for office, each thinking, if I can get 15 or 20 percent of the national vote, I'll win the national election. Now you're looking at a campaign of the likes of Howard Schultz and Michael Bloomberg and Tom Steyer and Oprah Winfrey and a few other celebrities. Is that really the system the country wants? No, and I I mean, I I think you're right to add. I I would accept that as a third reason, uh, practical reason for the Electoral College. Uh, Often in Europe, as you know, elections will end up with six or eight candidates for president, and it's hard to make a clear choice. It's hard to give a president a mandate. Uh, And and part of the purpose of the electoral system here is to take it down to two or maybe three choices Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to have a better mandate for the, the president who's finally chosen. Was there this much teeth grinding after the 2000 election? It seems to me that mm-hmm. um, there was in the immediate aftermath, maybe 9-11 had a bit of a cleansing effect. Uh, maybe the 2004 election had a more cleansing effect when Bush is reelected and wins the Electoral College. I don't remember, though, Democrats being this obsessed with the Electoral College this far into the first term of the president. So how much of this is the Electoral College and how much of this, David, is Donald Trump? Well, I think you're you're clearly right that that we may couch arguments in the clothing of principle, but yes. it it does come down to politics. And uh, so you have Elizabeth Warren saying, you know, a couple of three weeks ago. Uh, I, I, by the way, making what I would argue is is a mistaken statement on its face. She said every vote needs to count, so we should get rid of the electoral college. Well, the fact <laughs> is, every vote does count. Right. It's just that if you're in a state and you lose that state, it your vote doesn't move on. Um, you have to aggregate and count votes somewhere. And our Constitution says that the votes are, the elections are run and the votes are counted at the state level. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wrote at the time, I said, I guess if, for Democrats, if it doesn't happen in Washington, it's really not government. You know, it, does, it doesn't count. Well, so it's just wrong to say your vote doesn't count in the electoral system. Uh, and the, the thing, I, if I could just add one point, I, th- I think the thing that people really are kind of put off by today, but they haven't quite put their finger on it, I think it's not that they like dislike the electoral college as much as they dislike the all or nothing, the every uh, winner takes all aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And as you know, there are two states, Nebraska and Maine, that don't use winner take all to allocate their electoral votes. They do votes. it by congressional they district. They do it by congressional district, the, and the then, winner of the overall gets two. Exactly, right, yeah. and and states are free to do that. I keep making the point: states run the elections. If they want to do it, they can. Right. So, I to me, a better reform than trying to eliminate the electoral college if you really cared about this, would be go to go state by state and make the case that we don't need winner take take all. I think that's the aspect that kind of troubles people. So I've been advocating this for years in California. If Republicans want to make California relevant nationally, what right. Republicans should do is push to change the electoral system. And instead of 55, go to the winner of the popular vote, do it congressional district by congressional yeah, sure. district. You might get 10 electoral votes, let's say, but that's that's significant. In the Absolutely. Scheme of things. Absolutely. And that will also change how campaigning is done. California won't be taken for granted quite as much if right. the vote is going to be split. Okay, let's say that we wanted to get serious about abolishing the Electoral College, going to the popular vote. Tell me how it mechanically it's done. Well, um, there's this, there's the right way and then there's the end run way. Okay, you yeah. got to push it through Congress. The right way is a constitutional amendment and, and 
frankly, just this week, one was introduced in the Senate, right. and a few weeks ago, one was introduced in the House, a constitutional amendment to eliminate the electoral system. Mm -hmm. By the way, interesting little fact, the Constitution doesn't talk about an electoral college. We've sort of added that gloss onto the term. Yes. It just talks about electors in right. states, and so it's come to be called a college, but that's not in the Constitution. And then if that amendment passes by a two-thirds vote in both the House and the Senate, it then goes out to the state legislatures, mm -hmm. and three-fourths of the state legislatures have to pass it. Well, besides the problem any constitutional amendment faces these days of yes. polarization and, and uh, so forth, that's going to be doubly difficult because you have a lot of small and even medium states that I think feel like they benefit from having the Electoral College. Right. So to get a three-fourths state legislative vote, just seems impossible. Right. So reverse engineer this for a moment. So in the House, you would need 292 votes. That's what a two-thirds majority is. The Democrats have, what, 240 seats, I believe, right. or somewhere right. around there. So you'd have to pick up the better part of 55 Republicans. Right. right. In the Senate, you would need 67 votes. Right. So there are, what, 47 uh, members who caucus with the Democrats? There's hardly 67 votes for anything. You'd have to pick up 20, but here's the problem. How many states voted for Donald Trump in 2016? The answer is 30 states plus yeah. the second congressional district in Maine. So you would need, what, 37 states to yeah. vote for this? Yeah. yeah. So how many? It's so that means yeah, 16 would have to break. It's not going to happen. No. But um, there is the end run option. I don't know if you want to talk about let's the national talk about popular the end run. vote bill. Okay, let's talk about that. Well, so just seeing the, pra the practicality of, of what you and I have talked about, right. the difficulty of a constitutional amendment, there is this national popular vote bill, or compact, as mm -hmm. it is called, um, that is being presented to state legislatures. And when the state approves it, um, uh, it requires the state electors to vote for the winner of the national popular vote. Right. Colorado just joined this. California is a charter member of it. Right. right. Connecticut passed it a, a few months ago, uh, and it's growing rapidly. So, you know, the idea is that um, we just ignore the results in your state. Right. And in fact, I've made the point, talk about your vote not counting. You know, let's say that Hillary Clinton over, overwhelmingly won California, which, you know, she did in, in 2016. But if, if Donald Trump had won the national popular vote, then my vote as a Californian electoral vote would have been cast for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Talk about my vote not counting. I mean, I think that's a little bit of a distortion. Um, so, and then this pact doesn't really come into effect until enough states pass it to add up to the 270 votes. So Colorado is interesting because Colorado, David, is um, the only state on that list. Most of the states on that list, all of them except for Colorado, are solid blue states. That's correct. Uh, Colorado would be considered a battleground state or a state you might look at the map and say it might be in play. But right, right now it's not. Um, but give me a scenario in which Donald Trump wins the national election, wins the popular vote in 2020. And California's electors now have to go to Washington and vote for Donald Trump. Is that really going to happen? <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. Um, uh, no, you're quite right. California, be, uh, Colorado, rather, became the 13th state, yes. uh, along with the District of Columbia, to ratify, as you say, the first battleground state. Although I would argue. Colorado's sort of been it's drifting been, left it's bluish. In, in, in recent years, right? But it's the only one that you wouldn't say it's a foregone conclusion. Correct. Yeah. And that makes 184 electoral votes now right. in the compact right. of the 270 needed. So it's moving along. It's clearly not going to be finished in time for the 2020 election, mm -hmm. maybe 2024. Right. Um, so we don't have to worry about this immediately. But it's it's kind of a stealth 
uh, attack. I mean, most people yes. don't pay attention to it, and then suddenly we're going to have eliminated the Electoral College, not by means of a proper constitutional amendment, but by this end run of the National Popular Vote Bill. Now, I think there's a very good chance that the Supreme Court would declare the compact to be unconstitutional. Uh, the idea that, that states can come together and compact to not vote their state votes, but instead... Right, because you could, have a, you, could, you could have a state which voted for a candidate, but the compact would require the electors to vote well, for the other candidate. In a different direction. So, so the court would say you're denying the public's yeah. will. So I think, there's a, I think it's a very good chance that they're going to go to all this trouble to do this end run and then end up with an unconstitutional Well, again, the question, Dave, is how do they get to 270? They can't get there without red states. Yes. I think uh, you look at the core Democratic votes... Uh, low 200s right. at the most. So they'd have to pick up another 50 or so. So they have to find red states, and what red state's going to sign on to this? Yeah. Well, and, and this is back to civic education, if I may, for a moment. Um, I mentioned earlier that, that we have a filter democracy. We have a lot of tools of federalism that aren't pure democracy. We have a mm -hmm. Senate that allocates members differently than a House, and we have the Electoral College that has the popular vote and the electoral vote. We have checks and balances. We have separations of power. We have what I call a filtered government, a government of filters to help protect a, a faction, as the founders called it, from sort of running off in some crazy direction. Well, I, I think even Republicans, even conservatives today, have sort of lost sight of the value of this filtered democracy. And so how could it pass red states, back to your, your right. question? I think that there's a, a lack of civic education and understanding, and, and people no longer, they say, well, this isn't democratic anymore, maybe it was fair 300 years ago, but it's antiquated now, and let's do a, we live in a modern republic now, not a founder's republic, and so we don't need these filters anymore. That's my fear, is that there may be enough poor civic education, even in red states, that some Republicans and conservatives are not going to see the value of the filters that protect our republic. That really does get to the heart of this conversation. I used to work for the governor of California uh, back in the 1990s. I wrote speeches to the governor of California. Each summer I would have college interns come in and work for me. And I used to have great fun giving them a civics quiz. And there were some very bright young men and women who went to very prominent colleges in California. David, they didn't know much about the 18th century in America. No, no, nor the, uh, hardly any their, their history started about 1850 with California statehood and us giving Indians smallpox and just a lot of political correctness. <laughs> they didn't understand the Constitution. They certainly didn't understand the idea of republic versus democracy. No, no. No, you're, you're quite right. I, I mentioned broadly some data earlier. That the actual data is 23% of eighth graders in the last round of tests. Uh, were proficient in government and civics and 18% in American history. I mean, right. that's, that's pitiful. And, and you know, you even have the humorous people, young people think Judge Judy is on the Supreme Court. They think the Cold War was started by climate change. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just, we, we could go on and on. Um, well, and, I, 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 you can get elected to Congress, with apparently. <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez maybe doesn't quite grasp the 22nd Amendment. No, that's, that's very true. Um, so, I, I, to me, I'm spending more and more of my time working on civic education, but mm -hmm. it because it seems to me that that's the long-term way to strengthen the republic, right. is to have people who have much better understanding of why, would, why do we have an electoral college? Why do we have uh, uh, checks and balances and separations of power? Mm -hmm. The progressives have convinced us that the solution is to become more of a direct democracy and eliminate the filters. Right. If the filters are getting in the way of what we want to get done, you know, as Franklin Roosevelt said in his Constitution Day speech, um, we the people are the first three words of the Constitution. So if we the people want to do things differently, then we can. 
Well, yeah, they can, but it's supposed to be by constitutional amendment. You know, you can't just kind of change things as you go. So to me, that is the long-term solution for the country is we're going to have to do more about civic education. Let's talk about we the people, and let's specifically talk about we the nine people who sit on the Supreme Court. <laughs> All right. Because um, I think if you're going to um, educate Americans in civics, the Supreme Court has to be a large part of this conversation. And the court has been hovering over the public since the 2016 election and the Merrick Garland uh, saga. And by the way, the many problems that face Joe Biden right now with, uh, with uh, touching of women and his long record, at some point, Democrats will turn to Joe Biden invoking the Biden rule back in 1992 right. about right. Supreme Court. Right. Just all, all trouble seems to lead to poor Joe Biden these days. Uh, <laughs> but this does kind of start the Supreme Court saga. In 2016, Republicans do not take up Marilyn Garlick's nomination. They say we're not going to do it in an election year. That sends Democrats nuts. The next year, Trump makes a pick to the court. He gets another pick after that. Right now, we have Ruth Bader Ginsburg's rather fragile health. Clarence Thomas is in the news today, saying he's not going to step down in 2019. That's kind of a sleeper story that's been sitting out there, and I've been kind of waiting to see if he would actually step down uh, this summer and allow Trump to pick his replacement, rather than waiting until 2020 and rolling the dice on the election. Um, but we have a lot of conversation about do with the court, and the conversation goes in one of two directions, David. Either, number one, pack the court. Speaking of Franklin Roosevelt, go back to what Roosevelt tried to do in his second term, which was what? Try to add more justices who were, you know, to, to, you know, to, 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 to get the better of those who were blocking the New Deal. Or the other one is evoke term limits. Uh, I'm assuming that you are not a fan of packing the court, but you do like the idea of term limits, and explain why. Sure. Um, yeah, I think to me, packing the court, um, which of course Franklin Roosevelt brought up in the first New Deal, so I guess the Green New Deal needs its own version yes. of court packing. Uh, it just seems to me that that actually accelerates the polarization and the politicization of the court because um, it's, it, as you point out, it's not really a constitutional issue that Congress can decide how many judge justices there are on the right. Supreme Court. Um, so it, it could be done. But of course, what will stop the next president from turning around and adding two more justices that would be friendly to his or her point of view? Right. This is this is one of the problems that we're experiencing by the weakening of Congress and presidents doing more and more by executive order or we do more and more by Supreme Court decision. Mm -hmm. Those things are easily undone later, you know, right. because they don't have a strong base of support. An important point of clarification, we've talked about uh, the Electoral College, and we've talked about voting, which requires constitutional amendments. Right. But if you want to alter the Constitution of the Supreme Court, or the, the, the makeup of the Supreme Court, or you want to alter right. the, the rules of service, Congress could do that. Congress could definitely add justices to the court. Okay. Um, but as you point out in your question, I actually think a better reform would be term limits for the Supreme Court. And there's a debate on whether that would require a constitutional amendment. Okay. Um, my argument for term limits, and it's an unusual one for me to make because I don't generally favor term limits in elections. I feel like it, I understand why people's frustration brought it about, but I think it thwarts the will of the people. People should be able to vote who, for whoever they want, mm -hmm. even if they're still in office. So I don't favor term limits across the board. But I think in the case of Supreme Court justice, who, justices, who are obviously appointed, not elected, so we're not talking about the will of the people, um, we've reached a situation where the stakes are so high for a nomination of a justice that we, we are nominating younger and younger and less experienced people who don't have much of a record that could be attacked, right. and people who could serve on the court 30, 40 years. We've clearly had some justices who served beyond their prime because the politics were such that they didn't feel they should leave until their president was in office to choose a replacement. Right. 
So if you look at the data, and there have been a lot of studies about this, the, the length of tenure of Supreme Court justices is way beyond what it was 100 years ago, and it keeps growing. And that's probably not a good thing. So the particular, there have been a lot of proposals, the particular one I like is to have Supreme Court justices serve 18-year terms, which means that each four-year presidential term would have two appointments. Right. And it seems to me that at least arguably that could reduce the politicization of the appointments because the next president's also going to get two appointments. Would you allow them at any point in that term or would you do them in, say, the third year of the presidency, the, therefore not the political year of an election or... Yeah, that probably makes sense. Yep. As you say, it's getting more and more difficult to get confirmed late in, right. in a president's term. Um, then the constitutional question arises. Well, it says justices are appointed, in effect, for life upon good conduct. Mm -hmm. um, my, my, my way of addressing that would be to say, well, I'm not going to say that after 18 years they can't be justices anymore. They're just going to go off the Supreme Court to some other federal court. Right. Now, maybe I'm tinkering with the Constitution then in a way that I argue against in other areas. Don't, don't make me be consistent, Bill. Um, but, but to me, that wouldn't require a constitutional amendment. Other people disagree and say, no, if you're appointed to the Supreme Court, you, you are a judge as long as you're, you're, you remain good conduct and you're not impeachable. Uh, and therefore, we'd have to change the Constitution. So that's a debate we're going to have to have whether term limits is constitutional could be constitutionally accomplished or not. Would you apply term limits to the district courts or to the CCAs? I probably wouldn't. Um, it's certainly discussable. Uh -huh. um, you know, a lot of that was solved in, in a lot of corporate realms uh, by having age limits. You know, you can't serve right. past age 65 or 70. Well, we're past that, so we can't. We don't have that remedy available to us anymore. So term limits is kind of the only remedy that we have. I'm surprised the left hasn't picked that up because if you look at the Trump presidency right now, what is going to be the last, if he is knocked out of office sure. next year, what is the lasting legacy? Sure. It's going to be his packing the courts with very young justices. Yeah. No, of course. Yeah. That's, that's as you say, that's probably the most significant uh, accomplishment right. of his term so far. So it, it, it may pick up, the packing is easier because it doesn't require, it clearly doesn't require a constitutional amendment. But as I say, to me, it's just like uh, when Trump came into office in the first week, he undid a lot of the Obama legacy because he issued executive orders countermanding other executive orders. So if you have a weak um, action, and I think appointing two, letting the next president, by the way, this wouldn't take effect during Trump's presidency. This would take effect for the next, they think, Democrat presidency. Mm -hmm. But as I said, then all you have to do is if you win the Congress and the White House the next time around, then you add your own two justices. Exactly. Exactly. So, to me, it doesn't solve the, the, the prob problem of politicization, except it gives the Democrats a chance to tip the balance in the right. present court. But then again, Supreme Court nominations have become political. No you question. Put the, put the most virtuous person in the world up there, and they're still going to be attacked by either the left or the right, just yeah. depending upon yeah, the no, and affiliation. I, I can't give Republicans a pass on that. I mean, I, I was troubled by the Merrick Garland uh, decision. Uh, I would prefer to have uh, Gorsuch over uh, over uh, Garland on the court. But I'm also a, a constitutional conservative. I'm a process conservative, if you will. Right. And saying that, that we're not going to let a president appoint a Supreme Court justice in the whole last year of his term, 25% of his term, to me, that's just politics. That's not a good constitutional process. So I was troubled by that, even though probably politically I, I would have preferred the, the outcome. Okay, we've now fixed government. <laughs> Good for us. Let us now fix America's educational system. Right. So you, David Davenport, I give you a wand to wave at the public schools, fix things. How do you bring civics back into public education? 
Well, first of all, they simply need some greater emphasis. Uh, STEM, science, technology, right. engineering, math, has, has become the bandwagon that everybody's been jumping on, both okay, in so terms of curriculum. We, we can agree, great to be an engineer, but maybe you need to know yeah. how your country came to be. Precisely. What, what grade do you introduce this? Well, I think that's been one of our problems, is, is we have thought of civics and government as a high school class. Florida has experimented with doing things starting in the elementary years, and mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I would favor that. I would favor uh, a dose in the elementary years, a dose in the middle school or junior high years, and then a heavy dose. Uh, most states only require one semester of civics or government. Um, I think in, in the present shortfall of, of civic education, a year probably makes more sense. Second thing I would do, I'm not a huge fan of testing in education. I, th I think it's gotten way too much focus. But if you're going to test, what you choose to test and not test becomes very important. Mm -hmm. And we only test civics in the eighth grade, whereas other subjects are tested regularly and at fourth, eighth, and twelfth grades. Mm -hmm. So I would increase testing. There's actually a proposal out there, Bill, that I have mixed feelings about. There's a proposal that you should have to be able to, to pass the immigration civics test in order to become uh, a, a high school graduate. Mm -hmm. um, and, and frankly, that's not that difficult a test. Immigrants pass it at a 97.5% rate. You need to know how many senators in your state. Yeah, exactly. Like that, right? uh, there's 100 questions, and they put 10 on the test or something. Um, I frankly think that's a pretty low bar, uh, uh -huh. but it might be better than no bar. And right. so some states are kind of tinkering with that as a possible testing mechanism. Uh, finally, I think teacher preparation and textbooks are really core to solving mm -hmm. this one. Um, a lot of people don't realize that when, you, when a teacher leaves a school of education, the whole emphasis has been on pedagogy and how to teach. It's not been on the content of what you teach. So you have a lot of teachers who really aren't expert in their field of teaching, and they know that. They're eager to know more, but they don't. Right. Um, and so I think greater teacher development uh, in, in history and civics would be part of it. And then you have some awful textbooks out there, including my all-time least favorite, uh, People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, which basically teaches how bad a country America is yes, yes. And, and how ugly the founding was. Uh, well, it's hard to love an ugly founding, as my colleague uh, from Pepperdine, Gordon Lloyd, likes to say. So I think I think something about and, and one one solution I like to that one that I've been doing some about is teaching using primary documents. Just having students retraining teachers to teach using debates and speeches of the period, so mm -hmm. that you can kind of re-enter right. the debate of the time, rather than get the one-page boring or the one-page Howard biased uh, summary of what happened at that time, you, re you enter the debate yourself and you reach your own conclusion. So there's some solutions out there. And the thing I would say kind of in closing is, the thing that encourages me is we could probably do something about civic education. We don't need a new law in Washington you know, right. to fix civic education. We could do it at the school district, at the state level. Uh, we could do it in textbook selection. We could, there are a lot of ways we could improve teacher uh, preparation. So I'm, I'm in favor of an all-out assault, if you will, and I think we could actually move the needle. Yeah, I do. I think that this is a job more for governors than it is the president. Uh, governors have to look at their state's curriculum and how the kids are being educated. This is also a job, I think, David, for the private sector. 
Hmm. You are Facebook, you're Apple, you're Google. Right. You're a right. big company with a huge reach into, into, right. this, into the society and ways to influence and shape right. thinking. And if there's such a thing as maybe taking the country on wheels, but just ways to help educate people right. and civics in this country, it would be very smart for those companies to get involved in this. Right. No, that's a, that's a great suggestion. Yeah. And uh, it, it, I, I think to your first point about governors, um, I should probably do this study myself, but somebody needs to do a study of what each state is doing about civic education. Right. And by contrast, what are the best practices? And and I think state legislatures would be open to passing some tougher requirements, but I think we need to educate them a bit on what those would be. Depends which state and how much control they are from the right, teachers' units. No, okay, yes, California, for example, good luck. Yes, no, of course, changing the curriculum is one of the toughest political <laughs> moves you can make in education. Right. So getting back to the idea of 16-year-olds year old, voting, maybe there needs to be a test. Like, if you're going to give a 16-year-old a driver's license, you have to take a test, a written test and an actual field test. And I'm not suggesting a field test where you say, okay, there's a screen, show me how you can touch it and do it, but perhaps give them a quiz and say, okay, you can vote after you answer the following yeah. 20 questions. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly discussable. As you know, tests for voting are right. not favored in our democracy. Right. It, it, it smacks of some of the civil rights uh, problems. Um, but yes, I think, once again, I think we have to keep the civic education horse ahead of the civic engagement cart. Mm -hmm. and, and however we do that, I think it has to be done. Could be. Well, I look forward to coming back for Area 47 when we talk about the <laughs> Kanye West presidency. <laughs> Thanks to 16 year old David Davenport, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. That's Donald Trump, not Kanye West. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of David Davenport and his colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hooverinst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. David Davenport is or is not on Twitter. You're not on Twitter, are you? No, I tried it for a month and, and uh, retreated to my office. <laughs> Wise move. <laughs> for the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.